Pastor John here welcoming you to our broadcast and asking this question. Have you ever gotten good at doing something without actually practicing it? Practice is necessary if we want to gain proficiency at, well, at anything. This is something we all know to be true, but would it surprise you to hear that this applies to our relationship with Christ as well? Find out how as we dive into 1 John in our sermon today. Practice, practice, practice. You know, I've told you before that when I meet with other pastors, I brag on you (laughs) Uh, because we have been so loved and so cared for by this church that it's been a constant blessing for the last 20 years. Many of you know we've had some challenges recently. Uh, We are convinced that God is teaching us things. And uh, somebody told me last week, John, you've got two hallmarks to your teaching. One is the union with Christ and the other is sovereignty of God. And that's what we're learning. Uh, We're coping. Uh, We love you. We appreciate all of the gestures of uh, prayers, uh, the the offers for help. We'll be taking some of you up on them, but know that God is working in our lives, and we're happy to be where we are. Anything you want to share? Thank you. Turn to the gospel. No, turn to. Don't turn to any gospels. But it's not going to be that kind of service either. So turn to 1 John. We're going to be in chapter 2, verses 28 through 310. Let me read this passage. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he's righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. How many of you people know what a bassoon is? It is an awkward musical instrument, and most people, you know, when you see one, you go, oh, that's what it is. 
Uh, I used to play French horn in a high school orchestra, and the bassoon player graduated, and the, the conductor came to me and said, you know, I'd like you to learn the bassoon. What is that? <laughs> so he, he, it, and it's about four feet high, and you have to have a little holder to hold on to it because it's so big, and it makes a noise like a deep-throated oboe. <laughs> and so I tried to play it. It's really complicated, and I was really frustrated with it, and I, I couldn't get it. And, you know, if you've ever, ever seen sheet music, the bassoon part is always like, a bunch of 132nd notes. I couldn't get it. I couldn't get the fingering and all that. And the conductor was getting frustrated with me. And he sent the previous guy in and he said, Look, you can't play all those notes. All you got to do is find the key and play a bunch of notes in the key. You're the only one that has this part. Nobody's going to know that you're not playing the notes on the sheet. Just stay in key and you'll be okay. And I went, really? Yeah. And, and, you know, the conductor was only using four or five keys. So I thought, well, I can do that. I can stay in key. And I started sitting there going, bah, 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 bah. the conductor's like, oh, very good, very good. <laughs> so I'd learned, I'd learned to fake it and the bassoon. And, uh, you, you know, I, I knew deep down inside of me that, that it probably wasn't the best way to do this. <laughs> Uh, there was something inauthentic about it, but I, I wanted to get a good grade, and, and, the, uh, and we sometimes find areas in our lives where we fake it. You know, maybe you're at work, something going on at work, folks at the water cooler want to talk about this, so we kind of slip in there and become part of that. Social groups, we put on airs, we all do it. You know, and nobody wants to admit it, but we all do it. We want to fit in. We want to do well. We want people to commend us. So we kind of fake our way through it. Now, the question we have to answer today is, can you fake it in your spirituality? Can you look and sound like a Christian without actually being one? And so, and, and then, then the other question is, well, if, if we can't fake it, what do we do? Well, I'm, I'm here to tell you today, we've talked about this before. It's been another hallmark of our teaching here. Some participation is required. And the fact of the matter is, if we want to be sanctified, if we want to be holy, if we want to be conformed to the image of God, we have to work at it. Brothers and sisters, we have to work at our sanctification. Well, that, that's not palatable to a lot of people. Uh, God accepts me the way he, he, I am. Yes, he does. But he doesn't leave you there. We're supposed to be transformed. We're supposed to be set apart. We're supposed to be a royal priesthood. A holy nation. So, we're going to see some of that in our passage today. John's been railing on these false teachers and we need to keep that in mind as we walk through First John. He's addressing these false teachers. They look and sound like believers, but they're faking it. They're teaching a man-centered theology, and they're causing division in the church. And that's kind of, that's kind of the hallmark of their ministry is their strife. Uh, there's division. There's tension. And last week, we heard how we can identify these false teachers, how we can tell who they are. John calls them antichrists. It's the only place in the Bible that the term shows up and is in these three letters. 
Bible names them. John says, oh, they're coming. We all know that, amen? The Antichrist is coming. But John also says they're already here. They're already here. They were there in the first century. It's a reminder. It's a sobering reminder that the Antichrist will plague the church until Jesus comes back. So now he's made these warnings and he's told us what to look for. Now he's going to begin to tell us how to live in those warnings, how, how we exist in this culture of untruth and lies. He's going to tell us how to get through it. And he's going to tell us how to live like people who have the Holy Spirit and know the truth. And so he's going to tell us to practice these things. That's why our sermon title today is Practice, Practice, Practice. So what is, what is practice? What does it mean? Here's how Spiro Zodiades defines practice. And in particular, in the way that John uses it in these passages here. It means to make a conscious commitment to do something. To make a conscious commitment to do something. I, I had not made the conscious commitment to practice the bassoon. So I wasn't practicing the bassoon. I was just faking it. Uh, so it means to bring something about or to cause something to happen. In all cases... Um, the, the verb is present and active. That means it's ongoing. So it refers to the action that is continuous and, and goes on into the future. So practice, at least, at least in these verses here, the word practice means to consciously be working at something. And as we go through the passage, understand that practice means that, that we're working at something. We need to keep this in mind. Uh, it doesn't mean... It does not mean that we are always successful at it. It means that it's at the forefront of our mind and we're working towards it. It doesn't mean that if we practice, we will be made perfect. It just means that it's on our minds. It's our goal. It's not a state of being. So the passage rolls out with three practices. We're going to learn how to practice purity in verses uh, 28 through chapter 3, verse 3. We'll practice holiness in 3 through 7, 4 through 7, and we'll practice righteousness in uh, 3, 8 through 10. So let's look at practicing purity, starting in verse 28. And, and so John says, and now a children abide in him. He likes this word. He, he likes the word. He encourages his children. He reminds them that he's their spiritual father. He reminds them that they are the church. He says to live in Christ. And John uses this word abide over and over again. He wants followers of Jesus to immerse themselves in who Christ is. To be ever mindful of who they are. And more importantly, who they belong to. He's a focus of their thoughts. He says abide in Jesus. Live in him. Surround yourself with him. And, and the image that he's trying to create is an image of a dwelling, a, a home, uh, a, a, a place that surrounds us, that shelters us, that protects us. Our home is safe. Our home is secure. We abide in Christ. Why? Why does John want us to abide in Christ? So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. What? We need to take that comment right there in context 
In the context of this letter, he's warning folks not to embrace these false teachers, not to embrace their teaching, so as not to find ourselves surprised at the coming of Christ. They're teaching a lot of weird things. He was godly. He wasn't human. He's come back already. He's not coming back. So he said, don't, don't embrace these teaching. Don't be surprised when he returns. Let's not find ourselves unprepared for his return. Not just unprepared, but startled by it. And subsequently ashamed that we had embraced some other truth. And now, now John's letter takes a little bit of a turn here. He's been talking about the false teachers. He's been talking about what our response to the false teachers should be. And now he wants to talk about how we as believers should live. And if the church is abiding in Christ, living in the truth, then there should be some evidence. If you're a believer, there should be evidence of that truth in your life. How does it manifest itself in the way that you live? So in verse 29, he says, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So we see that there's a connection between knowing God and living like you know him. And that connection shows up. The evidence of that connection is that We practice righteousness. We're consciously working at being righteous, having it on our mind. We're we're striving for it. Maybe not always, maybe not always successfully. Maybe we drop the ball every now and then. Maybe we we stumble, maybe we fall, maybe we we you know, John talked about our thought life and the thought bubbles that none of us would want anybody to see. Maybe that happens to us from time to time. But still we're striving for righteousness. We're always working towards it. And John says that people don't know us because of that. And what he's trying to say is that seems a little strange to other people. That seems strange to the world. And so in verse 1, he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. They're saying, well, you know, they think we're strange because they thought he was strange. And this is also the reason Jesus Christ, understand this, Jesus Christ is the reason that you have those thoughts of righteousness. You haven't conjured them up. They're not part of who you are. They're the Holy Spirit in you, drawing you towards God. And that's happened because we have experienced the grace and the love of God. The world doesn't understand God. It doesn't get it. So it doesn't understand us either. Why do you want to do that? Don't you want to have a good time? Oh, that's just a spirit of religiosity. All that stuff comes out, doesn't it? But we're being made into his image. We're being conformed to him. We are set apart, consecrated for his purposes. And indeed, in verse 2, he said, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. See, this is the idea behind practice. What we will be has not yet manifested itself. We're his children. We're being sanctified. 
We're being made holy. That's why we have these motivations towards righteousness, but we're not there yet. We're not yet holy. We're not yet made perfect. We are practicing righteousness. We're not perfecting it. John says, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. When Christ returns, we'll not just gaze upon him. We're not going to just look at him and go, isn't that really something? We will understand. We will, we will experience his character and nature. We will know him because we will have embraced the truth about him. All those things he says about himself. And we do that by believing his word and what he says about himself. And John would add by rejecting any false teaching or any man-centered theology that would deny that. By doing this, by practicing this type of righteousness, verse 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. By doing this, we're actually practicing purity. And, 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 and we, we can make this mean a lot of things, but taken in context, we have to understand it's purity of our thoughts, purity of our hearts, focused upon Jesus Christ, not allowing all this other garbage floating around the church to taint that. John says that's, that's practicing righteousness bringing us closer to being pure the way Christ is pure. So he also wants us to practice holiness. Now, sometimes, you know, they kind of sound like the same thing, don't they? But there's nuance in here. Uh, verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, we need to understand the context here. Because we can go off into the weeds and start doing things that John's not calling us to do. John's writing about false teachers and those people who decide to follow the false teachers. And these false teachers are teaching dangerous doctrine, dangerous theology, and they're causing all this tension and all this division in the church. And of course, one of the things the false teachers taught was, as believers, we don't sin. That's what John's addressing here. Scripture says that those who say they don't sin are liars. And so, in other words, saying that you don't sin is a sin. So John says these people are practicing lawlessness, consciously living in lies and untruth, and actively, consistently, deliberately breaking the law. John very clearly says that sin is living apart from the law. Verse 5, he says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. This is just a reminder of what the basic teachings of Christianity are. Reminder that the false teachers are living in sin, even though they claim, even though they claim to know Jesus. John's readers know that in Jesus there is no sin. He's the only one. Jesus is the only one who is sinless. You know, this is why it's so important that we understand that he's fully human and fully man. He's the only one that is qualified to sit in our stead, to stand in our stead, to hang on the cross in our place and bring us into the presence of God. He's the only one that can do that. 
So John's saying, these people are telling you don't sin. There's only one that didn't do that. That's Jesus Christ, and you're not him. How can you say that? And if you keep on saying that, you keep on sinning. In verse 6 again, he says, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known. These people don't know Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you the Kavakis paraphrase here. Okay? No one who lives in sin like these guys are living in him, in his character and his nature. They say they know him, but they don't. Verse 7, he says, little children, don't let anybody lie to you. Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. He said, don't let these people lead you astray. Don't let them seduce you into living like they do. Living like they're the center of the universe and so are you. That's not righteousness. The ones who are practicing righteousness are making a conscious sincere effort to live like Jesus did and to live under the guidance of his word. So it's all an encouragement to live in, to practice holiness, to lead a pious life like Jesus did, to work at not sinning, even though we may fail at times to have our hearts, in, deep in our hearts, a desire for holiness. But the other thing he wants us to practice is righteousness. Verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So John links continuous sinning to the devil. No, 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 he doesn't blame the devil. He doesn't say, oh, the, devil or, the devil's making you do this. He says that those who commit that type of sin are of the devil. Now, it's similar to living in for, that we've seen from the previous verses. These people are living in the character and nature of Satan. And their, act, their, their activity is directly opposed to who God is. As a matter of fact, the reason the Son of God appeared, John says, was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason Jesus appeared in the flesh, he's reminding them of this, was to destroy the works of Satan. Now, there's not a, a, a subtle dig, not so subtle dig, at what the false teachers teach. They say Jesus was divine. He wasn't human. And John makes this profound theological statement here. And did you see what he said? He said, God appeared. Talking about Jesus. Talking about Jesus taking on flesh. And he's calling him God. He said, that Jesus who came in the flesh, the flesh that those guys are denying, is God. They're not just denying Jesus. They're denying God. They're throwing the whole trinity into the garbage can. Wow. Then in verse 9, he says, no one born of God. That sounds pretty neat. What does it mean? We don't know. Born of God shows up 10 times in John's letters. He never really tells us what it means. Oh, we, you know, we go, oh, God formed us in the womb. Yes, that's true. You know, God created us. Yes, that's true. But we don't really know what John means by born of God. And trying to find out kind of misses the point. Because every time John brings this up, 
Every time he, he uses that phrase, he associates it with the way a believer lives. If you're born of God, you should live this way, how he behaves. No one who was born of God, no one who belongs to God, no one who has God as his father, that's my best shot at born of God, God is your father. He says, makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. He keeps on using the phrase. Another case where we need to be careful here. It would, it would be really easy for us to take these phrases and judge somebody else's sin. Wouldn't it? Oh, that sinner is not born of God. Judge him as not being Christian. It would be really easy to say something like, if they were really a Christian, they would stop doing that. It would be easy to think that this verse says Christians don't or shouldn't sin. Certainly looks that way, doesn't it? And if they do, then they're not Christians. Now, some folks understand that we shouldn't do that, kind of. But I got to tell you something, a lot of folks then revert to quantifying sin. Oh, I would never do that. No Christian would do that. No Christian would keep doing that. And a lot of people like to do that. And I got to tell you something. I fall into this trap myself sometimes. And all I'm doing when I do that is I'm saying that their sin's greater than mine. And somehow my sin is more acceptable to God than theirs. Is that true? Does God give us a pass on sins that aren't as serious as we think they should be? See how easy it is to follow this? You see how you become a Pharisee? Thank you, God, for not making me like that terrible person. And even as we read that passage, we go, thank you, God, for not making me like that Pharisee. (laughs) It's deep inside us. Sometimes we can't stop it. I'm not sure what's worse, condemning others or trying to quantify sin so that we end up somewhere favorable on the sin scale. But I am sure of this. In in chapter 1, verse 8, John said this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. There's the gospel right there. Our sins, he forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him, God, a liar. And his word is not in us. A couple of this with some of Paul's writings, which say that we're all sinners, and then couple that with Jesus' Lord's Prayer, which tells us to ask forgiveness for our sins on a daily basis. And we see that all of us are prone to sin, even after we've been saved. So what is John trying to tell us here? What does he mean when he says God's seed is in us as believers? 
John's using some pretty strong metaphors here to describe the fact that true believers have been changed and are being changed. God is our Father. We now belong to Him. We now have God's Spirit in us. His essence, His character, and His nature. Has, and God's given all this as a deposit on our salvation. Whoa! Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians 1 a guarantee of our salvation. If you're concerned about these things, you're saved. If you're concerned about being saved, you're saved. That's the Holy Spirit in you drawing you towards God. So the Spirit is with us to urge us not to sin, to guide us and direct us, to help sanctify us, to keep us on that straight and narrow path. But we're not going to be perfect at that until we stand in glory. But the Spirit should be evident in us. It should be flowing from us. We should have a desire to avoid sin. And John says in verse 10, by this... It is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Ooh. Oh, well, I was really good up in that practicing righteousness thing, but now we get down to, wait a minute. You do that, and you love your brother. You love your brother. Wow, that kind of throws that whole judgment thing out the window, doesn't it? What do we do with that? John says we should practice righteousness. We should be getting better at it. And we should be getting better at loving our brother. It's a new subject in John's letter, but this is what he's been leading up to. We're going to go deep into it next week. He's going to develop it a lot further. But for now, the encouragement is to love other believers. We're called to have compassion and to show mercy to everyone. Believers or not believers, the scriptures are clear on that, but we're called to love the others in the church. Oh, that's so hard because they baptize differently than we do. That's so hard. You know some of those people jump up and down and fall on the floor You're not asking me to love them, are you? Some of them do terrible things. We do too. The church has become so bifurcated and divided over silly things. What do you think those elements do? Oh, that's not scriptural. I'm not taking communion with you. We need to get used to it. We'll be doing that for eternity up in heaven with the very people we're complaining about. Oh, they have a different church politics than I do. They've got women pastors. Somebody said several years ago, you're not going to have women read scripture, are you? Yes. Called to love others in the church. Then word for love here, this is interesting. Is agapeon. It means we are to love other believers with a godly love. And keep on doing it. And our love, our love becomes the evidence to the rest of the world and to the rest of the church 
that we are practicing righteousness. Whoa. That's something we need to think about. So we've seen these three practices. Practice purity. If we claim to know God, it should manifest itself. The evidence should be in how we live. We should be practicing purity, moral cleanliness, holiness. It's a signal to the world that we're set apart. That we're an unusual people. A peculiar people, the scripture says. That we're living for our God, we're living for our Savior, who's coming back for his own. We should be practicing holiness. We should be trying to live like Jesus did, working on our righteousness, striving for holiness, not focusing on our freedom or our power or our authority, but focusing on the one who gave us all of those things. We have them, amen? But that's not the goal. The goal is to be focused on Jesus Christ. The goal is to become one with him. The goal is to be the evidence of his love and mercy here in this earth. It's not to have all those things. Material or spiritual. You know what? This is not an easy calling. And we're not going to walk it out perfectly. We're not even going to do it well sometimes. We will stumble over our own sin. We will stumble over ourselves. Paul knew this. Paul knew exactly what we're talking about right here. He experienced it. And he describes our dilemma perfectly. Romans 7, 18. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. This is Paul. Late in his career. A few verses later, he says this. He will be delivered. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Because he is delivered from this desire to do right, but the inability to do it. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. So as Christians, as true Christians, we want to be holy. We want to please God with how we live and what we do. But our flesh, our flesh makes it hard. Praise God. Jesus has freed us from that level of sin, he's freed us from the consequences of it. So we should also practice righteousness. And we can do this because we have the Holy Spirit in us urging us on, helping us to live righteously. So John is encouraging us here to search our own hearts and see if there's a spark of a desire to please God. And if we, if we do that, we need to be honest with ourselves because we can't tell what other people are thinking or doing. We can't tell what's in other people's hearts. We can't examine them. We would like to. We would like to examine them and judge them and quantify them. But the scriptures tell us that we should be doing that to ourselves, examining our hearts. That's hard. So when we do that and when we know the word, we reject false teaching. The false teaching that these people are causing trouble with based on our scriptures, not based on how we feel. So we, we watch us. We reject them. We reject their teaching. But we don't judge them. 
we don't judge them. We don't compare ourselves to them. That is God's job. Not ours. It is God's job to judge. We look inside to see, Psalm 139 says, to see if there be any wicked way in me. We don't say, I'm looking into my brother's heart to see if there be any wicked way in him. I'll let you know, God. And we strive to walk rightly. We practice righteousness. You know, I was able to fake my way with the bassoon. But there came a moment when I had to prove myself. My orchestra teacher came to me and said, you're doing a pretty good job on bassoon. I'd like to apply for a scholarship to Ohio State University to need a bassoon player. And at first, you know, I'm 17 years old. I'm an idiot. I don't know that I've improved any since then. I thought, oh, that would be great. What do I got to do? He said, you got to go down for an audition. I went, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> so for an audition, they put sheet music in front of you and you, you sight play it. And, and I had to confess. I said, I've... I've been faking it. You know, that guy looked at me and said, I know. (laughs) Oh, I thought you were dumb. (laughs) Yeah, can't fake it on the bassoon. We can't fake it in our face. Don't let anybody fool you into thinking that you can. It's not an easy walk. It's a hard walk. It's not about being happy. It's about having contentment in all things. We've talked about that. The lesson that Kelly and I are learning. If we, if we are going to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, we have to practice, brothers and sisters. We have to work at our sanctification. Jesus did all the work in providing it to us. He hung on a cross and died for our sins. Those of us who have confessed our sins to him, recognize that he's the son of God, have eternal life. And now, now we work in a manner that honors that sacrifice and gives thanks to him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we confess that we can't even scratch the surface of this without your help, without the presence, without the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray now that he would move among us, Father, and drag us another step down that path of sanctification. Lord, we don't all move at the same speed, but we're all going to the same place. And help us to realize that, Father. Help us to love each other. Help us to have mercy and grace upon each other. The level of mercy and grace that we have received, Father, let that flow from us. Let us be the beacons of your grace that we're called to be. Let us not judge each other, but let us hold ourselves accountable to you and your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pastor John back here again. If you are blessed by the service, let me ask you to do us a favor. Would you click on the like button below that little thumbs up? If you're listening on sermon audio, perhaps you can comment or even share the sermon with someone else. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter at WBFVA. We're on the World Wide Web at WBFVA.org. Let us know if you'd like us to pray for you. 
If you'd like to support us financially, you can make donations through our website at wbfva.org. Just click on giving. You'll receive a tax-deductible receipt at the end of the year. Either way, we would love to hear from you or even have you visit us in person one Sunday. We meet at 46 Winchester Street in downtown Warrington, Virginia at 11 o'clock every Sunday morning. And now, may God bless you richly until we gather again.